Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. That's me, Dr. Jeff, Jeff McCowage. I'm a paediatric oncologist at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, which is in Sydney, Australia. And today I just want to talk about another of our chemotherapy drugs, and that's a drug called ifosfamide. Ifosfamide. So before I go on talking about this drug, I'll just tell you which uh, diseases we treat with ifosfamide because it might be completely irrelevant to you. So it's used in a lot of different diseases. It's particularly used in the treatment of some of the sarcomas, you know, the bone and muscle tumours. So particularly, it's just about always used when we treat someone with Ewing sarcoma. It's used sometimes in the treatment of rhabdomyosarcoma, particularly in Europe and Britain. Uh, Americans tend to use cyclophosphamide more, but Europeans tend to use ifosfamide more. It's used in the treatment of leukemia sometimes. So acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it might be used more often. That would be in the high-risk cases of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. That's a sort of smaller group of patients with ALL where um, uh, they need stronger treatment than the rest of the patients with ALL. We wouldn't use it much in myeloid leukemia it might be used sometimes in Hodgkin's disease, and there's particularly a combination of ifosfamide and uh, vincristine, I think it is, in recurrent Hodgkin's disease. It might get used a little bit in the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It doesn't get used much in neuroblastoma, and it doesn't get used much in Wilms tumour, though it is used sometimes in Wilms tumour that has a recurrence, so, you know, a Wilms tumour that relapses after uh, initial treatment, and it would be used in some of the higher risk forms of kidney tumours in childhood. Back to bone tumours, it's sometimes used in osteosarcoma. For a while there, we were all in a big international trial to work out if adding ifosfamide to the treatment of osteosarcoma was a good thing in the patients whose tumours weren't responding well. It hasn't really panned out to be something to routinely add in that situation, but there'd still be protocols around using ifosfamide. It's certainly an active drug in uh, treating osteosarcoma, and it certainly might be used in a patient with osteosarcoma who has a relapse of their disease after initial treatment. There's not much use of ifosfamide in brain tumours. I'm struggling to think of a time when we might use ifosfamide in brain tumours and we wouldn't use it really in germ cell tumours very often, you know, testicular ovarian tumours. We wouldn't be using ifosfamide very much in that situation. And finally, there's another group of those sarcomas uh, that are called soft tissue sarcomas, but they're not the rhabdomyosarcomas. It's pretty complicated. But um, when we treat children who have a soft tissue sarcoma, but not a rhabdomyosarcoma, then ifosfamide along with doxorubicin is often the drug combination that we use. So they're the main ones we would use it in. That'd be Ewing sarcoma, some rhabdomyosarcoma protocols, some soft tissue sarcoma protocols, and certain patients with leukemia. So back to ifosfamide. Ifosfamide is a closely related drug to a different chemotherapy drug called cyclophosphamide. And I already did a podcast episode on this some time ago on cyclophosphamide. So ifosfamide, closely related to cyclophosphamide, and like cyclophosphamide, ifosfamide is what you call an alkylating agent. 
That means it gets into tumour cells and into the nucleus and it gets into the DNA of the tumour cells and it adds these little chemicals called alkyl groups into the DNA and then that messes up the DNA and then hopefully when the cell goes to grow, it can't succeed or it just dies. So that's what you call an alkylating agent. There's a whole class of drugs. The problem, of course, is that tumour cells develop ways to repair the damage done by the alkylating agent, and that's one of our problems. But that's how iphosphamide is working to kill cancer cells. Next, let's talk about how we give iphosphamide. Well, when we give iphosphamide, it's given through the central line or through a vein in the arm, so it's always given intravenously. And it's got the same problem as cyclophosphamide, namely... When the iphosphamide leaves the body out in the urine, then it can burn the urinary bladder. And if it does that, then it can cause what you call hemorrhagic cystitis, a problem where the bladder is bleeding and you're passing urine and it's got blood in it and it can become really, really severe. And so we have to do the same thing with iphosphamide as we do with cyclophosphamide. And that is, when we give the drug, we have to give intravenous fluids at a very high rate as well. So a typical combination for Ewing sarcoma, for instance, involves giving iphosphamide every day for five days. And the dose is 1.8 grams per meter squared of iphosphamide. So when we do this, we need to bring the patient into hospital and then we give the iphosphamide usually over three hours. And then for the next 21 hours, we give intravenous fluids at a very high rate what we call double maintenance fluids. So you work out how much fluid you would normally give someone if they weren't able to eat, and you double it. That's double maintenance fluids. And that makes them pass urine a lot, and that means whenever the iphosphamide and its metabolites gets into the urine bladder, it's always dilute. There's always a whole lot of water there as well, and so it doesn't burn the bladder. The other thing we do is we give a second drug called mesna. Mesna is not a chemotherapy drug. Mesna is a drug that protects the bladder. Mostly we give the mesna intravenously as well, and you can give it every few hours as what you call a bolus dose, or you can give it as a continuous infusion along with the double maintenance fluids. But whatever you do, the mesna also ends up in the urine bladder, and that's where it ties up the iphosphamide metabolites and stops them from causing that hemorrhagic cystitis. So that's how it usually goes for Ewing sarcoma and for many other uses of iphosphamide. Typically, five days of iphosphamide and lots of fluid, lots of mesna, and then go home on the sixth day if you're feeling all right. Now, there's other ways of giving it. There's shorter combinations, you know, two- or three-day versions, particularly in rhabdomyosarcoma and in soft-tissue sarcoma. And then there's combinations that use really extremely high doses of iphosphamide. That's particularly for recurrent osteosarcoma. There's one where the dose isn't 1.8 grams per meter squared of body surface area times five, but three grams per meter squared of body surface area for five days. That's a huge, humongous dose, but it still requires all of that fluid and all of that mesna and then hope to go home on day six if you're feeling all right. Another thing to mention is that very often when we're giving iphosphamide in these situations, it's with another chemotherapy drug. So in Ewing sarcoma, we're normally giving another drug called etoposide intravenously as well. 
And normally when we're treating rhabdomyosarcoma, particularly the European protocols, they might be giving vincristine and actinomycin D with it. And with soft tissue sarcoma, it might be iphosphamide with doxorubicin. So there's usually some other drug being given as well, and that's going to influence how well the child feels during the chemotherapy. So the iphosphamide alone might make them feel sick and like vomiting, but the other drugs as well might be playing their part. So we normally have to give anti-vomiting drugs as well during the iphosphamide uh, to try to relieve nausea and vomiting. And there's a whole podcast episode on vomiting drugs. You can listen to that. So during those days in hospital while we're giving the iphosphamide, what are the things that can go wrong? What are the side effects that the child can have? Well, the first one is the one I just described. That'd be feeling sick and maybe vomiting, and that'd be reasonably common. And it depends a bit on what other drug we're giving and on the particular child. But yes, we're going to be giving something to prevent nausea and vomiting. Next thing is that we might see blood develop in the urine from the drugs we're giving. So despite all of our best efforts, giving all this fluid and giving the mesner and doing everything to try to protect the urinary bladder, we still have some patients who develop blood in the urine, either during the chemotherapy or sometimes a week or two later, and it can be severe. Another thing that we might see during the chemotherapy is that some of the blood chemistry tests get a bit abnormal. Whenever you're pouring in that much fluid into somebody uh, for days on end, and particularly if they've got some other drugs that they're taking or they've had previous chemotherapies, it's all a bit much sometimes for the body to control the uh, blood chemistries properly. And so normally we'd be checking those blood chemistry tests. Well, usually every morning we do a set of what we call electrolytes from a blood sample just to check that we're not messing up the body's sodium and potassium and all of those sorts of things. But most of the time we're giving this chemotherapy, it involves being stuck in hospital for six days at a time and maybe feeling nauseous, but mostly just watching the, the drug and the fluids dripping in 24 hours a day and passing urine a lot, and it's all pretty uneventful most of the time. Now, what about side effects that occur a week or two later? Well, they're very significant. And the main one here is that the iphosphamide suppresses bone marrow function. So whenever you give iphosphamide, then the bone marrow uh, stops making blood properly. And so the blood that should have come off the bone marrow assembly line about a week or 10 or 14 days later just isn't there. And so normally after iphosphamide, well, a week or two later, we'll see all of the blood counts dropping. And so normally a week or two after iphosphamide, we'll be getting the patient back to the clinic or back to the local doctors or somewhere to check the blood count and to see if the blood counts have dropped and if they have, how severely have they dropped. And I've done episodes on blood transfusions and platelet transfusions, but we'll particularly want to see what's happened to the platelet count, you know, the cells that make your blood clot, what's happened to the white blood cell count, and what's happened to the haemoglobin level, that's the red blood cells, because sometimes the haemoglobin level drops low enough that we have to give a blood transfusion, and sometimes the platelet count drops low enough that we need to give a platelet transfusion, And we don't really use white blood cell transfusions except in very odd circumstances. So if the white cell count's very low, there's not much more we can do about it except know all the more that if there's a fever, they really do need to be in hospital on IV antibiotics straight away, even at 2 o'clock in the morning. By the way, I should have mentioned that after we give iphosphamide, we normally give an injection under the skin 
called Peg GCSF. Peg GCSF or New Laster, that's one of the brands. And that's a drug that stimulates the bone marrow to make white blood cells so that the white blood cell count recovers faster than it normally would. Still drops, but it recovers faster. I've done an episode on that, a podcast episode, PEG GCSF. Now, what else happens a week or two later? Well, it depends also on what other drug you've given, of course. So some children will also have received, uh, say, doxorubicin or actinomycin D. and, And some of these combinations can lead to mouth ulcers. Ongoing nausea, some people will get some diarrhoea, and it might be a real problem maintaining weight. You might find the child that just isn't able to eat enough to maintain their weight. So listen to all my nutrition podcast episodes. But usually what happens is the blood counts drop a week or two later, and then they recover, and then we're ready to give chemotherapy again. And it might be that we then give a different sort of chemo combination or it might be more cycles of the iphosphamide chemotherapy. Next, I just want to talk about some rare side effects of iphosphamide, ones that we don't see very often, but uh, we sometimes see them occurring. So the first one I want to mention is what we call iphosphamide encephalopathy encephalopathy so encephalo means brain so you've heard of encephalitis a virus infection that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about encephalopathy which is a situation where the iphosphamide has got into the brain and has caused some sort of a problem and it might be a child who becomes uh, drowsy or a bit confused or a bit irritable or a bit disoriented And it can even go so far as to impair consciousness, you know, end up like sleeping all of the time or even having seizures. Now, it's a rare event. We don't see it very often, but it is one to know about. Iphosphamide encephalopathy. So if we see this sort of pattern of symptoms developing after iphosphamide, we certainly want to look closely at the child. And of course, we have to rule out that it's not something else causing this problem. So they often end up having brain scans and all sorts of things. But if we end up thinking that it is this iphosphamide encephalopathy, well, it may be that we can just ride it out and just give the child a few days to recover. Or it may be that we give a certain drug to try to reverse it. There is a drug. It's called methylene blue. Methylene blue because it's blue. And for those sort of super chemistry geeks among you, uh, what it is is a reducing agent. So it has an effect on electrons in atoms and molecules and things. And it helps to reverse this encephalopathy process. That's methylene blue. But this is rare. I've got to stress it's rare. And generally speaking, we see a full recovery. Now, it may mean a problem for giving further cycles of iphosphamide. If a given child develops an episode of this encephalopathy, we'll have to think long and hard about whether we can keep using that chemotherapy drug. Are there alternatives or are there some things we could do to try to prevent the encephalopathy next time, a dose reduction or something? So it's a big thing to consider. The next thing I want to mention is an effect of iphosphamide on the kidneys. So first you have to understand how kidneys work. And I'm going to do a whole episode on how kidneys work because they're very complicated. But basically what they do is they have the blood coming into the kidney and the blood is filtered. So that means a whole lot of fluid and electrolytes and other chemicals goes through this membrane and that's part of filtering the blood. And then 
all that fluid goes elsewhere in the kidney and the kidney hangs on to the things that we want to keep and gets rid of the things that we don't want to keep. So it has to hang on to some of the water or else we get dehydrated. It has to hang on to some of the sodium and the glucose and the phosphate. All these chemicals that are in the filter go out through the filter. The kidney's job is to hang on to them but let all the bad chemicals go and they go out in the urine. So that's what you call the renal tubules. The renal tubules' job is to hang on to the chemicals we do want and let the chemicals we don't want go out in the urine. Well, iphosphamide can have a bad effect on the renal tubules so that they don't work properly. And in particular, what we might see in this situation is that the child has too much of their body's phosphate going out in the urine. So again, body's meant to be hanging on to phosphate because we need phosphate for our bones and for all sorts of other things. But if the child has too much phosphate being wasted in the urine, then that can be a problem. And it might mean they end up with a low phosphate level and then that can be bad for their bone metabolism. So it's the sort of thing we have to watch for. And sometimes it might be years after iphosphamide that we first start seeing a problem with this or it might occur earlier. So that's called phosphate wasting or a iphosphamide-induced tubulopathy, if you like. And it may affect other things as well. It may affect the body's control of sodium and water and acid and all sorts of things like that. So that's a particular effect on the kidney. I wouldn't say we see it all of the time. Uh, it's more common in children who receive iphosphamide at a very young age. Um, and so it's something we need to watch out for. And then the only other one I wanted to mention was an effect of iphosphamide on the heart. Now, I think this is really rare, but it is true that there was a study conducted in France in the treatment of Ewing sarcoma, and I believe the study was stopped. This is in the sort of late 80s or 90s. Um, I believe the study was stopped because they saw some children who developed cardiac damage, which they blamed on the iphosphamide. Now, since then, I've got to say, it's not something that you hear people talking about much, iphosphamide being bad for the heart. But there is that one paper out there. So it's not something we're typically worried about that much. Now, a lot of children getting iphosphamide are also getting doxorubicin, and doxorubicin can affect the heart. And so we're often doing heart tests along the way. But it's mostly because of the doxorubicin, not the iphosphamide. And now I want to talk a little bit about long-term side effects of iphosphamide, apart from those that I've just discussed. So the first one to mention is an effect on fertility. So we're talking about people's ability to have children, assuming they're cured of their cancer and they grow older and then they want to have children. Well, it's true that iphosphamide is one of the drugs that can be bad for the sperm count. So it can affect males by interfering with uh, manufacture of sperm and then lead to a low sperm count. And so when we see teenage boys and we're going to give them iphosphamide, we very often recommend that they have sperm banking performed. I wouldn't say it was universal to have a problem after iphosphamide. It's not like it's going to happen to everybody who gets given iphosphamide, but it is something that's a risk and something that your doctors will probably talk about, that uh, iphosphamide does come with an increased risk of infertility. It might also have an adverse effect on females and fertility and ovarian function in the years to come. 
And so in some situations, in uh, patients who are old enough, we might take a piece of ovary and put that in the freezer before giving iphosphamide, if we've got time, if we don't have to get on with treatment urgently. Or we might even give them injections to make them make eggs and then harvest eggs and put them in the freezer. That's a bit like people having IVF. You know, they have the injections to make the eggs uh, ovulate and then collect a bunch of eggs and freeze them. So fertility preservation measures might be something that's discussed before we start giving iphosphamide to people. Now remember, if they're getting iphosphamide, they might also be getting cyclophosphamide and doxorubicin and other drugs. So it all has to be put together for the individual child. The other thing to mention is that there is a slight increased risk of getting leukaemia later in life when you give iphosphamide. And that applies to a few of the other chemotherapy drugs as well. But iphosphamide is on the list of drugs that can bring an increased risk of leukaemia. Now, I'm not saying everyone's going to get leukaemia after iphosphamide. Most children are not going to get leukaemia. But if you measure it, there would be a slightly higher risk of leukaemia uh, through the use of iphosphamide and certain other chemotherapy drugs. So that's another one to talk to your doctors about. The problem, of course, is we're treating an existing cancer with iphosphamide. We've got a problem. Uh, We know it's an important drug to use. And so uh, we have to treat the existing cancer, but be aware that there is this slightly increased risk of leukemia later on in life. And then the third one to mention is the one I've already discussed, that effect on the kidneys and whether they'll waste phosphate in the urine or certain other chemicals. And and that doesn't occur to everyone by any means, but it is something to be aware of because chronic phosphate wasting is bad for your bones. You can develop uh, something a bit like osteoporosis. So anyway, that's uh, iphosphamide. So again, when we talk about giving iphosphamide, we're usually talking about being in hospital for a few days or five or six days, giving a lot of fluid, giving a lot of mesna. And we're normally thinking that about a week or two later, all the blood counts are going to drop and we're going to have to see how much they drop and whether we have to do something in particular in response. And then it has some less common side effects that we all need to be aware of, but they usually don't happen. So talk to your doctors more about this if you want some more information. Um, But for now, I'll leave it there. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. Remember to be nice to the nurses, and I'll talk to you again next time. Bye now.